So I just got back from Burning Man where I saw Dr. Sam Shea do a talk about biohacking, biohacking, and we've been in touch since. And boy, oh boy, I want to, I'm excited to talk to you more because you have got about a thousand doctors after your name. You're a scientist. You're capable of healing in all sorts of ways with a legitimate support from universities and such. Am I right? <laughs> okay, so so the, the official term scientist is I, not, I don't think would apply to me. I, th- I think I have a scientific way of thinking, but right. I don't have a lab and I don't run experiments. But <laughs> I so the I mean my my background is that I went to uh, UC Santa Cruz and graduated with um, a pre med degree as well as um, a minor in writing. At that point, it was called communications and rhetoric, and I did a um, holistic health practitioner certificate as well. But I mean, that was, that was years and years ago. But I went to um, chiropractic school in Dallas, Texas called Parker, right now it's called Parker University, it was called Parker College of Chiropractic back then, and graduated with um, a doctorate in chiropractic, um, another bachelor's in health and wellness, and another bachelor's in human anatomy, and graduated as uh, the only summa cum laude in my class. And wow. then I, uh, was in the states. I traveled around and taught board reviews to other chiropractors so they could pass their uh, national chiropractic exams, so they could become licensed. So I, I traveled around uh, teaching physiology, anatomy, uh, X-ray diagnosis, clinical sciences, and then I went to New Zealand uh, in 2010, and I was in New Zealand for eight years, and that's when I opened my um, hands-on clinical practice as well as my functional nutrition, functional uh, diagnostic, like using like functional tests and whatnot. And I developed my model called the 10 Pillars of Health, which is what you saw at the biohack, your, your biohacking talk, where, um, you know, spoiler alert, it's uh, the, the, the talk centered not around the latest nootropic or the latest you know, special vegetable to have or the latest, you know, micro hack on exercise or meditation or light therapy or whatever. And I'm not, and, and those things are all great, but really what I did was try to organize people's thinking uh, you know, in a very scientific, logical way based on clinical experience because I, I treated lots of fatigue patients, lots of chronic pain patients, gut patients, hormone patients, and and you know, to organize one's thinking around biohacking is actually the same way you organize your thinking around someone who's chronically ill, because the categories of health are the same, it's just where you are on the health spectrum. Are you in a lot of pain, whether metaphorically or literally, and you're just wanting to get some sense of baseline? Are you wanting to get from baseline to feeling better, and then the biohacking is from better to optimal? Mm. And and that spectrum is it's it's just a spectrum, but the ten pillars applies to the whole spectrum. So mm. you can categorize your thinking instead of you, you know you can put all the hundreds and thousands of health tips, if you will, into these ten categories, and then know what pillar of health, what category to actually focus on, as opposed to chasing after and optimizing the last two percent, you're better off identifying and attending to the, the pillar that needs 50 percent care than spending your time and resources on the last five percent of something else. So that's mm-hmm. what I meant by biohack your biohacking. It wasn't 
to teach the, the nuancy stuff, it was to give people the 10 Pillars of Health framework so they can then organize their entire biohacking trajectory for the rest of their lives. Amazing, and I'd love to get, have an overview of those pillars in a moment. But um, th th this podcast, I'd love to go real deep on your journey f from addiction and and from your mind's point of view, the science of what's going on there. So just to give people a bit of context, I'm in Chicago, you're in Colorado, so this the sound's going to sound a bit different to most of the podcasts. So yeah, so those ten pillars, because I think that's a really good, intelligent approach because you're covering all your bases and then lifting, making significant change across the board rather than just doing something like just your mind, nootropic. Yeah, I mean, and, and like I said, like all, the, all these advances in, in the technicals of each pillar are extremely valuable. And I think what's been lost has been a structured, logical, clinically proven framework to organize everything and more importantly prioritize everything right. and and that's what's lost because it's very simple to get overwhelmed and and enamored with the latest advancement and there's lots i mean you got stem cell things coming out of everywhere now and mm. and you've got extracts from this plan and that plan and then you've got la laser technology everyone's in a in a in a bidding war over whose lasers are better or whose water filter is the filteriest or whatever <laughs> and and it, it's those are all amazing. Just, just we need some way to organize it. And and I think what's important is that the model is clinically based, not theoretically based, because it it, it can only be a true model if it applies to the whole spectrum of health. Because biohacking is merely the application. Not merely is the wrong word. Biohacking is the application of different modalities, but. At an aspirational, at the aspirational end of the spectrum, where some people would say, "Well, if I wear these orange sunglasses at night, you know, I do those for patients all the time." But it's not just for biohackers; it's actually for everybody. And uh, I, I'd be happy to go into whatever level of detail you want. It's just mm -hmm. a matter of picking a starting point. Because if we want to go into ten pillars, man, we're going to be talking. Could you just for people listening? Can you give like a, a two-minute overview of what those ten pillars are? I know it's, sure. it's bastardizing them, but people can look into you more for that. Sure. What I'll do is I'll share I'll, I'll share my screen for those who are just listening. I'll, I'll absolutely verbalize what's going on. Yeah. Uh, but I'll also just share my screen to show. Uh, actually what the pie you know, chart what, what, yeah exactly what's going on so here is let me know if you can see that I can yes perfect okay great so that's me um, and just some other stuff about my background of how I came to these 10 pillars which is relevant so I'm also a functional neurologist uh, and an acupuncturist I got an acupuncture degree while I was in New Zealand so these 10 pillars came from a really broad training. I was also trained by one of the top osteopaths in Australasia while I was in New Zealand as well. So I'm I'm kind of like a health mutt, like a combination, or if you're into Dungeons and Dragons, a multi-class, uh, where I'm cross-trained in a bunch of stuff, including genetics. I'm a fit genes practitioner, which is an incredible genetics lab out of Australia, Melbourne specifically. Yeah. Actually, my first um, podcast I did was with Dr. Beaver, who was the head of that, but that's a whole other story. Um, this is an ebook I made on gaming disorder, which we'll cover on the addiction. Mm. Uh, and unplugged from gaming disorder. 
Yeah, unplugged from gaming disorder. It's the seven ways to to game less, and I'm a former video game addict, which is why I have a uh, an interest in addiction. But these are the ten pillars of health. So, right. the ten pillars of health, uh, they're they were based off the chiropractic triangle of health, which was uh, developed in the late 1800s, and for the 1800s, it was pretty brilliant. It was the cause of disease was trauma, toxins, and stressful thoughts. Now, for 1895, that's pretty brilliant. Mm. <laughs> now, in the we're in the 21st century. Um, I, false modesty aside, updated the triangle into ten pillars because life is a bit more complex than what it was in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Mm. So I still have the the core of that. Physical is the blue, chemical is the orange, yellow, and the mind, emotional, is the green. So you still see trauma, toxins, and stressful thoughts baked mm. into this model. Mm. But with my neurology training, I put brain in the center. So the ten pillars are uh, just splicing physical, chemical, and emotional into three parts each and putting brain smack in the middle. Now, literally, that's true because all physical inputs, all chemical inputs, and all emotional inputs um, land on the hypothalamus. Gotcha. And, and you, you, you get your endocrine neurological response you know the, the 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 center of the center of the universe in the brain for your body's response could be easily argued as the hypothalamus so the brain the first pillar of the brain has to do with your hormone system so it's you know the HPA axis or the HPA T hypothalamic pituitary adrenal thyroid gonadal and not people even putting digestive or gut as a as a legitimate hormone uh, secreting organ or system as well. Mm. It's also left-right brain imbalance, uh, and uh, I know for some of the neuro geeks out there, if you say left brain, right brain, they're they may roll their eyes and say, "Well, that's really simplistic." And my response is, "Yeah, but clinically, it shows up. Left brain, mm. right brain, absolutely, hundred percent shows up in practice, which explains why mostly women get the chronic diseases." Mm. You know, so if you think about it, who gets most of the diseases of a chronic? What's fibromyalgia, adrenal fatigue, chronic fatigue, thyroid, right. Hashimoto's? Who is it? Is it is it women or men? Yeah, women. It's women. Okay. And then you look at the men. You know, it's they're not off the hook. You know, what do they keel over from? Um, violence, accidents, stupidity, and heart attacks, <laughs> which is all way more which, rock star. Well, it's all hyper left brain activity. So hyper left brain activity is all action and no thinking. You know, to mm. be very simplistic about it. But so what is what is violence? It's action without thinking. What is stupidity? It's hey, watch this. It's action and no thinking. This is the show Jackass. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, and stupidity is uh, and then um, accidents is ADD. It's it's not like who has more ADD, boys or girls. Yes, man. It's, it's boys. So it's not paying yeah. attention, and they getting accents. And then heart attacks is that the left brain controls the rhythm of the heart, not the tempo. So if you have a, a bad rhythm, as opposed to a, a a fast tempo you can live with, but an altered rhythm that can cause a heart attack. So the left brain controls that, um, and. Uh, I have a, I have a video on my website, 35 minutes devoted to this. It's like called the disease divide or the gender divide. Why men and women get different diseases. Mm. But but this is it's it's it shows up in clinical practice. Mm. So that's the brain. The second pillar 
Number two is mm. bowel and digestion. And I put it as number two intentionally because I'm dealing with poop, doing number two. So that's mm. my own little <laughs> baked-in sense of humor built yeah. into the model. <laughs> uh, and the it has to do with are you pooping regularly, but also are you digesting fully? You know, people spend all this money on great nutrition, but are they actually digesting and absorbing it? That's a completely different question. Mm. So there's... There's digestion and the exit of toxins. And then pillar number three is the physical body. And that's all literally all things physical. That is mm. your spine, that's posture, that's everything from an infected tooth to mm. uh, unresolved sports injuries or, or the results of violence. Uh, in New Zealand, the top three causes of physical injury for men were violence, car accidents, and rugby. And the top three causes of injuries in my practice for women were violence from other men, car accidents, and horse falls. Okay, yeah. So, it, and that's just the culture of New Zealand um, in terms of sports, as well as there's a real issue with domestic violence there. Uh, so, that's the physical body, and and people who have. Uh, chronic unresolved injuries, or even if their spine is misaligned, the mis even a misaligned spine, even in the absence of the experience of pain, still creates a neurological signal of stress, which then ramps up the HPA stress response system. Even if you don't feel pain, misaligned joints can still add to the background noise of stress in your life. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, and so this is where physical body, the interventions are like chiropractic, massage, osteopathy, um, you know, all the way up to orthopedic surgery and dental work. Gotcha. Uh, so four is burst, burst exercise, that, that, that's the exercise pillar. So uh, I'm a fan of safe high-intensity interval training, not just high-intensity interval training, and it's yin component, uh, alter ego, walking. So walking and bursting, I'm a big fan of. I'm not a big fan of jogging. Or marathoning. I have an article which I've diplomatically named Why Marathoners Look Like Cancer Patients uh, on, on my blog. And I grew up outside Heartbreak Hill, so I, I'm not in really being hyperbolic when I say that because if you've ever watched people run in the Boston Marathon, they don't look healthy, most yes. of them. You know, they look, they look terrible. And there's <laughs> reasons for that. It has to do with the cortisol response eroding Jogging will initiate a long-term cortisol response, which then erodes away the muscle, the muscle, the muscle tissues. Yeah. The muscle tissues. Uh, that's why they look so gaunt, except for their thighs, which are the only muscles really getting any exercise. Right. So, uh, so I also know people who over-exercise in the high-intensity world. I've had to work with bodybuilders who are losing muscle tone, not because they're losing muscle mass, but because they're becoming so inflamed that their muscle tone becomes washed out with all the inflammatory water retention from over over exercising right and that, that, that is that's that's just sorry just remind me of one um really powerful thing i remember you saying about in all, i mean all we all know disease is right. all caused by inflammatory and so you had this really great dna check where you can find the location of your body where you're most susceptible to inflammation uh, so what, what you're referring to is uh i do i'm a uh, i'm a fit genes practitioner there's not that many of us are in the states um they're they're the lab out of australia i was mentioning before i did a full interview with dr paul beaver phd mm. um that interview is on my on my blog and he 
what he did is that he's not actually a medical doctor. He's a, an uh, engineer. And what right. happened is that both of his parents were diagnosed with cancer in the same month. So he put his engineering genius into reading thousands upon thousands of genetics articles. Now, what is an engineer? They organize processes in a logical, sequential way to get predictable, reliable outcomes. That's what an engineer does. So it's actually to his advantage he was an engineer because he could organize the genetic data. More data on your genetics test is not helpful. More organized data is helpful. Mm -hmm. And so what he did is that he prioritized uh, genes according to four criteria, which is what genes control thousands of genes upstream, what genes are in more than 10% of the population that have variants. So you're not testing some obscure gene that only 0.1% have. Now, I'm not saying there's no value in testing that, but that's more for like further down the line genetic testing, not general upfront testing. Gotcha. He, the other criteria were that are... Um, do are these genes directly involved in the seven processes that lead to any disease, not a specific disease? So the seven specific processes are, like you mentioned, number one, inflammation, number two, free radical damage, number three, liver detoxification, number four is vitamin D receptor capability, number five is methylation, number six is circulation, number seven is fat and energy metabolism. So notice I didn't say any disease in there, like you pick your disease. Yes. It, it, those are the processes that are involved with the diseases, primarily inflammation, but obviously free radical damage, vitamin D receptors, methylation, liver, they're all involved as well. And then the fourth criteria is that he only picked the genes that had peer-reviewed journaled articles, experiments done on humans that showed epigenetic changes based on lifestyle alone the types of foods, the types of nutrients, the types of exercise, toxic exposure, and so on. Uh, so those are the four criteria, and what came out of it was 58 genes. Just 58, and organized. So here's wow. the, like the first 15 are just devoted to inflammation. Next three are the mitochondrial-based free radicals damage uh, scavenging genes, like MN-SOD, catal specific catalase, uh, uh, glutathione peroxidase one. Uh, and then eight liver genes, three for phase one, five for phase two, VDR1, VDR2, etc. Um, so what you can do is you can look at this list of 15 genes, mm. all in inflammation, and you can look for, is there clustering? Is there pattern? Is, is, there, is there 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 with inflammation as a whole? And then you can then look at all the lifestyle interventions and then choose the fewest number of interventions that affect the most number of the most critical genes. So instead of giving three lifestyle interventions per gene, you give like, you know, if you give a, a readout of some other company, gives like 94 genes or whatever, you're given like 94 or 188 things to do. Instead, like, okay, here's the six to 12 things you need to do that are gonna deal with, you know, 80 to 90 percent of all the genes that are relevant to your situation based on these pathways. So you just you just massively simplify people's genetic um, testing down to what's absolutely critical. And then when I'm talking about that bodybuilder, you know, this person in particular, her interleukin 10 genes were had some pretty uh, unfortunate variants. I mean, she she couldn't clear her inflammation, and her um, CRP genes 
uh, the ones that have to do with liver, uh, they also had variants, and she also interleukin-6, and I think, I think both of her vitamin D receptors were also off as well. So what happened is it, it became this um, kind of inflammatory wind-up loop mm. where the more she exercised, the less able, and the more inflammation she was exposed to, the less she wasn't able to put it out quickly, and her liver got overwhelmed because her CRP genes weren't able. She had like all three of them at variance, so they weren't. Mm. Her liver wasn't able to clear the inflammation either. So it, it. So she got. The more she worked out, the more washed out her muscle tone became because it was water retention. And oh. so she, before she met me, she's like, "Oh, I have to work out more and more and more to get my muscle tone." And in reality, when I told her to pull back her muscle tone was then revealed because the inflammation went down, which was totally counterintuitive to what she was taught by all the gym bunnies on the YouTube channels. Wow, how so fascinating. It, it's, it's very practical. I mean, Dr. Beaver did a phenomenal job because they're all lifestyle interventions that are totally doable, including down to like diet and supplements and other stuff. He, he did some other really cool things like the carb choice profile where you can actually genetically determine your carb tolerance. So this actually can help determine your macronutrient profile for life, wow. like how many carbs to proteins and fats. So the genetic stuff's like super exciting. And I'd actually put that in the body category yeah. of, of the 10 pillars, like where is your genetics? And, and of course, all of these influence everything else. Um, and as you can see, we can go deep into one pillar for hours. Yeah, yeah, even yeah, yeah, just yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we'll try to keep really it top trying line. to keep it succinct. <laughs> really trying. Um, so that so covers that, the, the blue area of the bowel, body, and burst. That's physical. This is the yeah. physical component. Do you yeah. poop? Do you digest? Are you injured, or is your posture suck? Hmm. Uh, and do you? What's your exercise like? All physical things. Yeah. Then the yellow-orange, that's the biochemical. This has to do with all things on the biochemical level. So biotoxins is your exposure to toxins, whether it's insecticides or fungicide. You know, New Zealand's a very agricultural country, so there's a lot of insecticides and fungicides that are used, uh, like in, in the kiwifruit industry or the, uh, the, the grape and apple industry, strawberry industry mm. for sure, and then all the, the dairy industry. And then there's other things like just preservatives in your food, toxins in the air, the residual medications and metabolites that are in city water, and hundreds and thousands of things that are in the biotoxin. I mean, this pillar, unfortunately, is going to be next to stress um, and sleep deprivation is going to be the single biggest problem for people in the next hundred years as the oh, world really? gets more and more toxic. It's not getting wow. better. It wow. is not getting better. So uh, the problem is, is that if you detox someone before getting all their other pillars in line, they could have a wicked, what's called a detox reaction, which, which really means their liver can't handle the overwhelm of the toxins that are being released into the bloodstream, mm. and then those toxins get redistributed and do lots of damage as they get redistributed. Or it ramps up phase one, and the phase one of the liver, without proper phase two, is actually gonna be more damaging. And just for people to understand what that means, your liver is basically a washer-dryer system. You've got like a couple washers and six major dryers. And so like if you wash your dirty clothes and then they're immediately put in the dryer, they're great. But if you wash your clothes but don't dry them, then they get moldy and gross and worse than if you never wash them at all. 
So that's what phase one is. Is mm -hmm. that phase one is washing, and if you don't have the dryers ready and available to deal with the washing, then they're way worse than if you'd never put them through the liver at all. So wow. the dryers are things like sulfation, methylation, glutathionation, glucuronidation. Um, so I think I said sulfation and uh, oh come on, there's um, there's like two yeah. others I'm blanking yeah, yeah. at the moment. Yeah. Whatever. So and if you, you don't. You can test. For, you can test for these things in order to see if you've got like a moldy liver, essentially. Uh, I, I want to uh, mold. Uh, <laughs> a mold. I see where you're going with that analogy, moldy liver. I would be very careful of saying you have moldy liver to a patient. Uh, <laughs> be very, very careful. Uh, uh, but the. <laughs> uh, but basically, yes, there are functional tests. So there's uh, like, for example, I run the Organics Comprehensive Profile, which is a mitochondria test so it's it's a simple urine test which basically is like an emissions test for your body like you do an emissions test for your car to find out how it's doing you can do an emissions test with the urine through an organic acids comprehensive profile and you get 46 different metabolites of how your mitochondria is doing so it, it checks you know Krebs cycle it, it, it checks all sorts of stuff including um, uh, liver markers that account for uh, like phase two liver detox. It also has uh, free radical damage markers. It also has uh, neurotransmitter markers for like dopamine and serotonin and yeah. uh, brain inflammation markers like echinurinate and other things. So you can test all these things. Like like with the bowel pillar, like I can run a, a GI map profile and, and check for, I don't know, like a hundred different parasites, funguses and mm -hmm. etc. Or you can check for your digestion ability uh, physical body, that's where you go to a hands-on clinician like a chiropractor or an old-school trained osteopath or a good physio or twain-not trained acupuncturist or a good massage therapist or cranial person. Exercise, uh, you can check inflammatory markers or if you're overdoing things, you can check your genetics uh, for your physical body, for the exercise, your inflammatory markers. Toxins, you can check, there's all sorts of tests for toxins mm. available. Mm. I, I personally like the mitochondria test as a big overview because you mm -hmm. get also your mitochondrial. I mean, biohacking, I mean, we can credit Dave Asprey for putting the center of attention of biohacking on the mitochondria. And I think there's a really strong argument for that. Uh, and so, but how do you test the mitochondria? Well, this is one way, right. you know. And biotoxins, unfortunately, gum the whole system up. And then um, pillar number six is bionutrients, and this is nutrition. So this yeah. is everything good. So proteins, fats, ketones, uh, glyconutrients, uh, vitamins, minerals, antioxidants. I put sunlight and water and oxygen on there as well. Um, this is where diet lives. And unfortunately, in a lot of the biohacking world, everyone gets fixated on this to the exclusion of the other nine pillars, usually. Mm. So most people, when they get into biohacking, they get really fixated on like, one to three, four, maybe five pillars. Right. You know, usually it's nutrition. Usually it's mold for the section of population. That, that's the bug section. That's pillar nine. Yeah. Uh, or it's like toxicity or exercise or stress. And and that's those are pretty much the main five. Maybe toxicity. I mean, it's a moving target, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. So that's nutrition. Um, and, you know, nutrition is obviously... a big subject that that was the talk um that was the talk i gave on tuesday um right. that uh, the other one. Oh, didn't how, to, how to determine your unique diet 
then seven is breakfast. Now this came directly out of clinical experience working with chronic fatigue fibromyalgia patients where I observed that nearly 100% of these very ill patients had terrible breakfast. Right. And that's actually what my first ebook was on, was on breakfast. Um, it's called, the first ebook was called Ending Adrenal Fatigue, The Easy Breakfast Guide. And it was a direct, I, I wrote it for my patients because I could literally change someone's daily experience of their blood sugars merely by changing their breakfast to something better. Amazing. And so I spliced out breakfast as a separate pillar, but then I realized breakfast was also routines. So, like, some of my sickest patients were shift work nurses. I mean, they have crazy schedules. Mm. And, and if the routine is off, then your whole physiology is off. So the seventh pillar is not just about breakfast. It's also about your rhythmicity of your daily life. Mm. And then bothers is stress, you know, financial stress, emotional stress, work stress, relationship stress, family stress, spiritual stress. So we've just moved over, we've moved over to mental and emotional, yes, which, is yeah. last, we, which is we the last out, three. We jumped into the green section of the mental yeah. emotional pieces is pillar number eight. So yeah. bothers is stressors. Uh, pillar number nine is bugs. That's all things microscopic that are alive. So that's yeah. your everything from your gut microbiome to Parasites, bad bacteria, candida, and, and mold. Yeah. Uh, and it's just your relationship with all things infectious uh, and non just uh, and beneficial, like beneficial bacteria. Yeah. Um, and then number 10 is bedtime, which is obviously sleep. You know, duration, consistency, quality, depth of sleep. So those awesome. are the 10 pillars. And I, and I alliterize them with Bs. So brain, bowel, body, burst, biotoxins, bionutrients, breakfast, bothers, bugs, bedtime and made it very a simple, colorful chart that's mm. logically spliced into physical, biochemical, mental, emotional with brain smack in the middle. Perfect. So, the, so for the biohackers, yeah. you just take everything you've ever learned and just slot it in. And then you evaluate, okay, how am I doing on my digestion and bowel? How am I doing on my physical body? What am I doing with my exercise? What am I toxic, et cetera? And just tick around the pillars and you can either self-assess to see what pillar needs the most support, or you can get a clinician to, or a coach to properly ask the questions within each pillar. Like my initial intake is almost 200 questions, broken up quite explicitly into each pillar, like brain, question, you know, 10, 20 questions, or 30 questions, bowel, 10, 20, whatever it is, you know. I just explicitly make the sections of my intake by these 10 pillars so I can efficiently identify what pillars need to be prioritized and in what order. Right. So that's the 10 pillars. And it totally came through uh, just working with chronically ill patients. And then I realized you can use the exact same model for biohacking, just the exact same. Amazing. That's so good. Thank you for sharing that, Sam. That's super fucking valuable information. Because, I mean, I'd love to hear your story um, of addiction, but most the, the question that's really jumped into my mind right now of what I'm fascinated about, because I went through um, pretty chronic depression and mm -hmm. understanding the chemical imbalance that was occurring in my mind was a huge, huge leap in remedying it. You know, remedying what, what's going on in my anatomy and being more objective and pragmatic. 
get that cough out. There it is. All right, good. You unplugged the mic. Smart, man. Yeah, I'm a pro, man. I muted that. Okay. I have done podcasts before, you know. <laughs> it looked weird at this end because I saw this splurting, but there's no noise. There's no noise, right. Okay. Um, I thought you could yeah, put that in problem. a gag reel. How's that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, so the understanding, if you're going through addiction in this situation, the neurological occurrence in your mind or the chemical occurrence in your mind so you can take a step back from the the being absorbed in the energetic feel of what it is and look at yourself as a doctor looks at the patient you know have some perspective and I think that's a really helpful thing I know it was for me for my depression and likely for addiction as well so if if you can explain some of the brain chemical neuro situation of, of an addicted brain sure so I think I think it'd be prudent to go a tiny bit into my backstory very briefly to absolutely how I got into addiction and this whole thing in the first place so at six years old my parents had a pretty horrific divorce um, to the point where one of my sisters ended up in the hospital with a bleeding stress ulcer and another one of my sisters fled the country for over a dozen years I my other sister buried her nose in a book and for me to cope, I had one hand on a game controller and or TV remote, and the other hand in a bag of Kit Kats or Hershey's or M&M's or whatever. Uh, and so it was, so at six years old, I, I couldn't cope with what was happening, and so I numbed out with sugar and screens. And I also developed um, severe insomnia, uh, like severe, where I couldn't get to sleep, couldn't stay asleep, woke up exhausted. I had what you would call, in air quotes, a severe adrenal fatigue at age six. And children can get that. I certainly did. I remember lying regularly to my school teachers that I felt sick so I could go nap in the, teacher, in the nurse's office between two and three. You know, that time when you have that hormonal sink. Wow. <clears throat> and I also had a coffee habit starting at age six, just to stay awake for school. My parents, both being medical doctors, thought they were doing the right thing um, and had my cholesterol checked at age seven and determined it was too high and I was put on a high carb, low fat diet of uh, bagels, bread, SpaghettiOs, skim milk, um, ramen noodles and other uh, quote unquote food or food like products, Fuck. which genetically, uh, as it turns out from you know, Dr. Beaver's lab and fit genes, I have the second lowest carb tolerance you can have, which explains a lot of my problems back then and the digestive issues and blood sugar dysregulation I had, <clears throat> which I only found out until recently. So and, and there's, and there was other things going on. Like I had, you can, and you can literally go through the 10 pillars of health at age six for me. Like I had a severe brain imbalance, stressed out adrenal issues. Pillow number two, bowel, had severe constipation. I couldn't go except once every three to five days. And that may not sound like a big deal to some listeners, but any parent who has a young child and the child is acting out or like fussy, what is the first intuitive question? The first intuitive question that they have. Have you pooped? Yet somehow, when beyond age six, that question is somehow not relevant at all. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Why is it relevant when you're a young child but not relevant as an adult or even as an older child or teenager? Mm. So, and then physical body, I had damage from, uh, in school, on top of the stress at home, I had a lot of stress at school. I was verbally and physically assaulted regularly at school. 
So I had a war zone at school and then an emotional war zone at home. And then I had injuries, and then also for the postural injuries from sitting over a desk and playing video games and watching TV. I thought back pain was normal. Um, this is six. This is it's, fucking crazy. It's a hero's journey, you know. Uh, in a sense, uh, like sound a bit arrogant. It didn't come out. No, it is. It's more like the medical. It's it's the wounded. It's the wounded hero. Wounded he healer. I meant the wounded healer's archetype. Yes. You, you are born into a situation. And there's a significant wounding that happens of one type or another. And then as a healer, you pull yourself out of that and learn the tools in order to help others. But, so, but, but which is absolutely in parallel with Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey because it's, mm -hmm. you, you, you either could do that or you would perish. <clears throat> there's no two, there's yeah. no two ways. Yeah. yeah, and that option was on the table as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. The so then um, exercise. I didn't exercise that well, given the sedentary life of being a student and a, a gamer and, and whatnot. Uh, toxins, a lot of toxic exposure with the diet I just described, plus a lot of um, mercury exposure and uh, just just lot just not really good food and exposure to toxins. Uh, Nutrit diet pillar number six. That I've already described. That that was a nightmare. Breakfast um, routines, like I, there was some routine, but I just with the sleep being so all over the place, and the breakfast being mostly bagels, like, and and I went to this back to the same bagel shop, it still exists, and the very I was curious, I checked the ingredients, I was like, what was I eating all those years? Literally, the first ingredient is not wheat flour, but high gluten wheat flour, oh, like fuck. high gluten. It's not even, it's not even a little bit, it's a lot, you know? And which is why bagels are so chewy, is because of the gluten content. Whoa. Uh, which is really why it's hard to find a gluten-free bagel. Which for um, you, which for the gluten-intolerant six-year-old. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Um, and then the, the bothers, the just massive stress at school and at home, bugs. I think I picked up an intest, uh, a chronic intestinal infection at summer camp, swimming in the lake with all the other kids, you know, you know, just the general level of filth that's in that lake. Mm. And then sleep, I described I was a severe insomniac. So I had all 10 pillars for like a 12, 12 year period of time until I was a teenager and I decided, you know what, this is nonsense. I need to take control of my life and devote myself. So when you were 18, to, that was the transition. Yeah, like seven, 17, 18 is where I met a mentor. Her name's Eliza. She, she's, she's still here. I mean, um, I mean, she still coaches me, Eliza Bergeson. Mm. Um, she, uh, she's amazing. She's like one of the most compassionate, wise people I have ever had the privilege to come across. And she changed my life. She put mm. me on a direction of healing as opposed uh, to a, a different direction in the other in the other direction. Mm. And um, so this is relevant to the discussion around depression and addiction because I absolutely had signs of depression and absolutely addiction. I mean, I had a 25-year addiction to video games and a 15-year addiction to sugar. So when we're talking about, let's talk about chemical imbalances. Okay, mm. so what is the fastest way to address chemical imbalances in a systematic, logical way without necessarily the need of massive pharmacology? Uh, I mean, sometimes pharmacology is needed in extreme cases, in my opinion. Uh, mm. I'm not a psychiatrist, I don't prescribe that stuff. Mm. But, but, you know, what is the most logical way to approach a chemical imbalance. Can I have a guess? Depression. I love a guess. Either hormone therapy where you inject hormones in you or you 
figure out a way where your body can produce them endogenously, like exercise for do- for dopamine and such. Okay, it's the ten pillars of health. Okay. <laughs> what it's what you it's what you that's okay. It's you look at someone, someone your body is the most magnificent chemical producing factory you can have. So let's look at let's improve someone's sleep let's improve someone's digestion let's improve their bowel function let's get their old injuries sorted out let's get them moving let's get their let's identify any overt toxic exposures let's get their diet improved let's put them on a better routine let's give them some tools to deal with stress let's look if there's any hidden infections or or sensitivity to mold or candida or whatever like let's look at all those things and wouldn't automatically automatically the brain chemistry will reset I mean the brain is right in the middle it's a two-way street Mm. you know sleep affects the brain brain affects the sleep bowel affects Mm. the brain brain affects Mm. the the you know it's it's a two-way street so like what is the fastest way is to have a very honest appraisal of the ten pillars of health if you can fix someone's sleep alone if you can just fix that if it needs fixing you could eliminate a huge percentage of depression-like symptoms. Wow. Okay, my, this, is, this, is not, this is not hyperbole. This is known. My father, Dr. Jonathan Shea, MD, PhD, has a MacArthur Award for his work with PTSD. He's written two books on PTSD and moral injury. He's working on his mm. third. Even mm. though he's got vascular dementia, he's a co-author, he still has his long-term memory. Mm. So he can, be, he can answer questions. He just can't like self-generate you know, like he, he needs someone there to help pull out all the information. Mm. Uh, I was just on the phone with him this morning about it. Um, mm. So what, what, what he says unequivocally, when he lectures to any any audience, whether it's uh, whether it's um, lieutenants or uh, first line soldiers or four star generals, he says, "Give soldiers back their sleep." Okay, and sleep is the only thing that will help alleviate 100% of all symptoms of PTSD. Doesn't mean cure it, it means it's the one that every single symptom can be improved with better sleep. Now, that is a very hard statement to put out into the world without significant backing because you're almost saying it's a panacea, and it's not. But if it can affect every known symptom in PTSD, that's saying something. Mm-hmm. Okay, so my father has been banging the gong on sleep in the military for decades. Mm. Uh, and so I've took, taken my father's work and just extrapolated it to the general public who, you know, some of my patients come in to see me with PTSD, but it's certainly not all of them, not the majority of them. Um, uh, mm, I'll, okay, I'll t- in certain periods of my clinical life, the majority did. Uh, that's mm. a different story. Yeah. Um, but... But sleep, because I heard a fantastic podcast for um, on Joe Rogan. I can't remember the name of the guy. But oh, I, I, he's uh, the book's upstairs. Uh, yeah. Why we sleep is the name of the book, and yep. I, I can't. I'm blanking on the author's name, but yeah, I listened to that podcast too. I think twice actually. Oh, and phenomenal! Just the phenomenal. knowledge dropped in that was yeah, mm-hmm. blew my mind. Just uh, if anyone's listening, just go listen because it's it's this. It's, it's just recent. Yeah, really recent, only about probably 20, 10, 10 or 20 episodes ago. And mm-hmm. just just changed my attitude towards, I didn't realize sleep was the number one thing we need, <laughs> you know, if, yeah. we want, if, if, we want, if we want the body to heal. 
Yeah. So, I mean, if people were to ask me, and this, this happened at the biohacking talk, okay, well, where do I start? I mean, and she was obviously asking the question from a place of not wanting yet to, you know, have a trained clinician in the 10 pillars of health, but like, where do I start generically as a member of the public that just wants to get started on my own? And I said, you know, the first places to start is breakfast, sleep, bowels, and you start there. Mm-hmm. You know, just, mm-hmm. just those three alone. And work on your stress level. So stress, breakfast, sleep, and your pooping. And that is a fantastic place to start. What, what's a quick way? Because out of all those, the pooping's the one I, I know the least about. So what's a quick way to, for people to have an overview of understanding? Okay, the so over, overview, um, I, 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 if they want more detail, I have a, a video and a blog post on, on better pooping. And don't right. worry, the, the video isn't gratuitous. You don't see anything uh, <laughs> oh, I'm gross. disappointed. Uh, I wanted to. I know, I know. Uh, so, so a couple things. Number one is to take pooping seriously. So when a dog needs to go, does it wait for the next commercial break or wait for the phone conversation to end? No, it's scratching at the door. So you got to honor your urge. That's your body's signal that I have to get rid of this toxic load. So that number one, I have literally, st- I was in the middle of a coaching call and I literally stopped the coaching call and said, told the coach, okay, I'm still on the clock with you. I need to go, you yeah. know, go to the do my business and come back and as just even in the middle of a coaching call I, if I had the urge I wouldn't go when went <laughs> uh, the second thing you can do is obviously uh, drink more water third thing you can do is uh, get off um, what's called intestinal cement as Dr. Jensen described it which is white bread you know all the different breads and whatever yeah uh, fourth thing you can do is what's called the oculocardiac reflex which is eye heart reflex and it's it's very simple it's just palming the eyes, yeah. Like, and that's on the video. You're not, you know, poking your eyes. It's just the palms, and you press yeah. it not so hard. You see lights or feel pain, but what happens is that triggers a neurological reflex through cranial nerve five is uh, is the afferent branch, meaning it's it's a sensory input into the brain, and the efferent branch is cranial nerve ten, which triggers peristalsis of the whole digestive tract, including the bowels. Right. So, so you literally you can sit on the toilet and then you can either get, you know, you can see the pooping unicorn video on YouTube or you can just get a cardboard box instead of paying however many dollars for a fancy stool and you can elevate your knees to change the alignment of your bowels to, to mimic squatting and you can literally rest your elbows on your knees and palms. So you can squat on the toilet with a box uh, underneath your feet. Mm. Uh, raising your knees, you can palm your eyes, uh, and just you drunk more water, avoid intestinal cement, and take in your desire, your, you know, your body's need to poop seriously. Mm. So that that's enough to get started. There, there's about a half dozen to a dozen other things, but those are the really simple, straightforward ones that people should get in line mm. first before you mm. get real nuancing. Right, and then and then if, if you got like funny feelings on your digestive. In, on your digestive tract and like bloating and such. I mean, there's a, there's a thousand diagnoses for different things and it? it's pretty hard to go too deep on that stuff. Well, but, that's um, where functional testing comes in. I mean, mm-hmm. just, just get tested. If you can, if you ha- can prioritize the funds towards your long-term health and short-term health, just get uh, a diagnostic test of your stools. I mean, yeah. there's, there's several companies that at least I use. Um, like if you want to check, if you are concerned it might be parasites, there's, 
Uh, it's called it's called the GI map, um, yeah. where you just get this massive readout of all sorts of fun hijackers that have come along for the ride. Mm. Uh, there's other tests like GIFX or CDSA or, or different stool panels that check for not only parasites but also digestive markers, uh, you know, fat markers, protein markers, and so on. Because the so, fascinating, because uh, only ask that because the fascinating thing about this your digestive tract is that it's like this tube that runs through your whole body, <laughs> mm -hmm. and it and it's got it's it's full of like bacteria, and mm -hmm. and it just st it can store things so. Like we don't ever see it to know if it needs cleaning out. We can feel it or sense it, or it will show show problems. But I, th I mean, what what's some great ways to keep it clean? Like keep the pipelines clean. Like warm water is one I've heard. Drink sipping warm water throughout the day. Okay, so that's uh, that's that's something Deepak Chopra taught years and years and years ago. Sipping hot water. Um, and so, just one thing you can do is simply start inspecting your poop. And there's like a seven-stage scale. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I'm blanking mm. on the name of the scale, but the, like there's seven different types of poops generally. Yeah. And what you want to do is look at: Are you moving at least 12 inches a day of stool, whether it's in one twelve or two sixes, yeah. or three fours? But if you do like, <laughs> you know, six twos, that means it's it's moving too quickly. You're not absorbing. Yeah. And you want to poop in a way that's. It comes out cleanly and neatly, it doesn't float, it's got an earthy smell to it, you only need one to three wipes, you know, it's not like slimy or sludgy, mm. it's brown, it's not green or yellow, or, or worse, red or black, like, mm. which implies blood, or dried blood, mm. um, and uh, th there's even a cute little book written by a gastroenterologist called, like, What, what Your Poop Is Showing You, or something, mm. like, it... Uh, <laughs> and um, he goes into a lot of detail, <laughs> and and so you gotta know: Are you being consistent with your stool, and and what is the consistency of your stool? Uh, and then there's other, you know, I, I'm a big fan of functional testing. There's other soft signs of the human body, like the the color of your skin, or uh, like if you're feeling constipated, or if you. Uh, and, and there's also, in some cases, room for doing a big clean-out, whether it's through colon hydrotherapy, if you have a history of constipation like I did. Um, but, you know, some people can get really too over-enthusiastic about that as well. Yeah, because yeah. generally your body, like you said with your brain, once you start looking after or giving a good food and whatnot, it will start, it, it cleans itself out, it fixes itself, right? Y usually. I mean, yeah. there's, there's something to be said about, you know, long-term caking and, and like needing to play catch-up and, and kind of speeding up the rebalancing process. Okay. Uh, so it not always when people can just start their life over perfectly now, you're still dealing with several decades of backlog that need to be still addressed uh, gotcha. in some way. All right. Well, let, um, that, thanks for that detour. Let's keep, let's keep on track with, um, where, addiction. with addiction. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So uh, so where where I got to with addiction is that um, I, I just wanted to define the term a little bit better mm. because um, when culturally when you say the word addiction. Uh, usually people conjure images of someone shivering in the corner, vomiting in a bucket, either with empty bottles around them or a needle in their arm. Mm. And that's, that is accurate for a certain subsection of the population and totally inaccurate for others. And I, I think the best way to replace the word addiction 
is with the word cannibal. And that's not my term. Um, there's these wonderful interventionists, actually from the UK, uh, and they wrote a book, It's Not Okay to Be a Cannibal, and the, uh, uh, the authors, um, uh, Andrew Wainwright and Robert Paznanovich, uh, the book yep. is not okay to be a cannibal. And, and just, just to really super simplify the, the explanation of the title is that um, it's an addiction when the behavior becomes destructive to oneself and others around you. You are cannibalizing yourself and others around you. You know, just because someone drinks alcohol doesn't mean they're an addict, or even to play video games or eat sugar or gamble doesn't mean they're an addict. It, it's has it come to the point where the addiction is ha the vice has become destructive, demonstrably destructive, and not just destructive like physically, externally, but but the internal environment has shifted. Like one starts to lie about one's behavior or hide it, or like get really defensive and have withdrawal if it's taken away or they can't access it. Uh, if they start missing sleep, for example, like with video games, uh, or they start, you know, it, it's like, it, it doesn't have to be overt destruction on the external world. It could be internal destruction of one's integrity gotcha. or one's self-care. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's when people really need to take a look. Is this, is this thing I'm doing be taking on a life of its own. And so that's how I want to redefine the term addict at, with the word, exchanging with the word cannibal. Because it, it's also cannibal, addict also has a, an unfortunate cultural stigma that it's a disease, you know, that you are permanently an addict, which I don't believe for a minute that, mm. it, that, that people are permanently addicts. I think people mm. can have tendencies that are can be hardwired or ingrained, but it doesn't mean that someone is once an addict, always an addict. I find that message incredibly disempowering. Mm. I think it's useful for people to get started on their journey, if it works, like to finally snap out of their delirium of their addiction and realize that, okay, this is something that's real and I have to take this seriously. And, and one of the useful things about once an addict, always an addict uh, verbiage is it really holds people to task to not jump back into the vice that they are addicted to, you know, which which, ha which has utility for sure. Yeah. Yes. So, but, for, I, but, but in your example, I doubt you would have temptation towards sugar or gaming again because you know it's destruction. Or do you like? It? Okay. So so if you're waiting for the perfect messenger, you're going to wait a long time. <laughs> All right. So I I am very aware of my tendencies. Um, I haven't played a video game since April 2014, right. um, and I haven't touched junk, junk sugar for I don't know a decade at least. Mm. Um, so what, that's actually what in my ebook, um, unplugging from gaming disorder. Um, I have a whole section on the dubious nicotine patch of YouTube therapy. So <laughs> people can use YouTube as a nicotine patch. And there are several problems with that uh, that I go into detail. And so, I mean, when, you, when I talk about tech addiction, like you can roughly break it up into three, three different experiences, a passive, active, and mixed. Uh, passive consumption is TV and movies, like Game of Thrones or whatever your vice is, Westworld, whatever.
yeah. um, Sopranos. Uh, it could be active, which is video games, where you're engaging directly with the screen. And then there's mixed, which is social media. You can either be active or passive. So that's how I break up the different subsections of, of screen addiction. I mean, my book is on gaming, but really can apply to movies and, and social media, whatever. Yeah. So, uh, and what you'll see in the model of dealing with um, addiction, it's, it's actually the vice is the third phase of the issue, not the first phase. Mm -hmm. So I think let's, so let's just, let me pull up the, let me screen share the actual model here. Right. Uh, so it's called the, um, da, 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 where are we? There we go. So it's called Tame the Beast of Addiction. Yep. So B-E-A-S-T. And, mm -hmm. and intentionally the B is in red and on top because, you know, when you have a neuro background, you, you learn something about the eye and the color red and the way the eye naturally goes to the top to look at the head of something. Um, so this is the five phases of the addiction cycle, regardless of the vice. It doesn't matter if it's sugar, if it's video games, if it's meth, if it's alcohol, if it's smoking, if it's food, if it's porn, if it's sex, if it's gambling, if it's shopping, whatever. All right. Mm -hmm. So it all begins with B believing a stressful thought. Right. So, like for example, as a child, it was. Uh, the world's unfair, no one understands me, I'm bored, is <laughs> a very sinister, possibly the most sinister, stressful thought on the planet, because people don't realize they're stressed when they believe it. <laughs> um, there's, you know, as adults, people have other, other stressful thoughts that come through, like he, she hurt me, he, she betrayed me, he, she lied to me, he, she cheated me, I have to make a decision, there's not enough money, there's not enough time, the world's unsafe, there's too much to do stressful thoughts yeah and so when you believe stressful thoughts then you have e an emotional physical stress response anxiety fear anger rage grief depression muscle tension physical pain nervousness yep. butterflies jealousy whatever it is so from believing the stressful thought comes the emotional physical stress response which then you a anesthetize with a vice sugar video games alcohol cigarettes, drugs, shopping, gambling, porn, sex, work, whatever it is. Yeah. So that's what I meant by the vice is actually the third step, not the first step. Gotcha. And then the fourth step is S, you smolder in the consequences. So the consequences of a vice vary wildly based on the vice in your situation. Someone who's a video game addict has a very different set of consequences than someone who's an alcoholic. Very different from someone who's a gambler. Different mm -hmm. from someone who's a workaholic. So the smolder in the consequences is not only uh, a word that captures the emotionality of what it's like after, you know, you come to, after using the vice, you know, like, oh, whoa, what did it just do? Smolder is actually a seven-letter acronym for the seven different types of consequences people render that vary based on the vice and their circumstance, but the categories are the same. So someone can have... So there's like societal consequences, there's monetary consequences, the S and the M in Smolder. The O is occupational or educational consequences, depending on your phase of life. L is legal consequences, those very different legal consequences if you're addicted to um, meth versus video games. 
Yeah. Uh, D is domestic consequences, like your home situation. E is your energy slash health consequences, and R is your relationship consequences. Mm. So these seven provide the checklist to reverse the damage or in 12-step terms, make amends mm. to what damage has been rendered by the vice you've just used to the emotion to you want to numb out from the belief you just had. Right. And then the T in the beast model is the terrible thoughts about the consequences you just rendered. Wow. So these thoughts are, I'm a piece of X, Y, Z, I just ruined my life, my career, my reputation, my money, my, my marriage, my relationships, my health, you know. And then if you be, believe those terrible thoughts, then you uh, E, feel bad, and, then you, and that's the ties, <laughs> and then you have consequences, and you go round and round and round. Wow. So that's the model, the beast model, and that is encapsulates the entire cycle of addiction. Does that match your experience? That's amazing. I, I, I can even just think of that in, in like real subtle terms, like if I'm a, a, acutely stressed, having a little bit of chocolate to numb it, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, feel a little bit bad because um, mm -hmm. I don't feel that great. Um, yes, yeah, so, so you can you can see it you can see it in real subtle ways, but you can also it's a it's a really w well done description. Thank you. And there's there's a couple real significant pieces here I want to highlight. The the thing that addicts miss when they're trying to treat it is that they go after the the end stage thoughts, not the beginning stage thoughts. So they they want to work on I'm a bad person, I ruined this, I ruined that, as opposed to the root stressful oh. thoughts like. He, she hurt me, he, she betrayed me, I'm bored, the world is unsafe, there's not enough time. They, they need wow. to go after the root thoughts. Not The thoughts that begin the cycle are different than the thoughts that perpetuate the cycle. Yes. That is possibly the most critical bit of information people can walk away with aside from just understanding what the beast model represents. Wow. Go to B and look at what you believe, believe in the stressful thought. What is that? Go to that, go to that. Yeah, exactly. What's the root thought? What is the root yeah. thought? And that's why, like, I'm a huge fan of the work of Byron Katie. Yes. And she's she's phenomenal. And I actually Amazing. gave a presentation on this model at her 2017 international conference. And it very, very well received. She, she actually pulled me aside to talk to me about it. Awesome. Uh, it so, the and I, when I looked at her when I said, I think boredom, I'm bored is the single most sinister, stressful thought on the planet. I looked right at her in the mm -hmm. audience when I said that. She looked back at me and nodded. Wow. <laughs> so the reason, again, boredom is really sinister because you don't realize it's stressful. Yes, very it, sure. It, it is truly sinister. And so um, mm. that's, that's when I really examine, especially in teenagers and children. Mm. So another key thing to highlight is that you can look at the model and know exactly where people are, can be stuck or plateaued at a level of their recovery. So people, it's literally just walking backwards in the circle. So people can be fixated on the end stage thoughts. Well, that's the T phase. Or if they're mm. in the smolder phase, all they're doing is running around making amends and trying to do damage control. Mm. Or if they're in the third phase and they're just busy switching vices. Mm. But they're still going through the same cycle, mm. just with a different vice. Uh, or they're in the second stage and all they're doing is trying to biohack their physiology but never going to their belief systems yeah 
So it, it so you can see where people can get stuck at each phase, and but they always have to back up to get to the root stressful thoughts. And I'm not saying there is there's no place to deal with uh, you know each of the phases. In fact, each phase is necessary to be resu- you know to, to be attended to. I have a another alliterized you know a roadmap here. So like for phase five, the terrible thoughts. This is where you need to reach out for help. So uh-huh, the right. terrible thoughts phase is actually bottom. That's what you call bottom. Mm-hmm. That this is this is bottom, where people feel so bad, then they want to reach out for help. Mm-hmm. And, and bottom, as you probably know, is a moving target for people. Mm-hmm. There's micro bottoms and there's macro bottoms. Yeah. You know. So so you reach out for help at phase five. I mean, this is when people really like they reach out for help. They want community. They want support. You know, the uh, groups and so on. Uh, Phase four, absolutely people should reverse the damage, but they just shouldn't stop there. Yeah. And then phase three is to restrict, remove, and replace access, in this case, you know, video games or whatever the vice is. So this is yeah. structurally, how do you limit your exposure, say in your case, alcohol, in my case, video games, and sugar? Hmm. And th- there's very practical ways to do that. You look at the people, the places, the time of day, and the circumstances. So there's certain people that you drink around or play video games with or eat sugar with. There's certain places like I have one patient where her sugar addiction was triggered in the kitchen because of all the junk in the closet in the pantry rather another patient was in their car where they would drive to the sugar shop or the other patient was at work where people were kept bringing like candies and cakes and stuff yeah so those are places and then time of day is literally time of day some people it's like 11 in the morning or two in at two in the afternoon or after dinner or at night like they're the times of day where it's triggered and then circumstances are things like holidays birthdays the in-laws are coming over mm. you know whatever so there's very practical ways to restrict remove and replace the vice now the the other thing to make clear is there's a difference between cross addicting to another vice and replacing a vice okay okay so cross addicting is switching the vice but going perpetually in the circle around and around and around clockwise so it's like I'm switching alcohol for cigarettes but I'm still in the addictive cycle yeah replacing is the conscious choice to pick a less addictive I'm sorry less damaging vice to buy you time to work on your resilience and resolving your underlying stressful beliefs gotcha so So it's is that more of a sustainable way of coming off addiction than just going cold turkey and it really depends on the personality and and the the resilience of the person I'll give you an example I had a patient call me who said I'm addicted to alcohol sugar and cigarettes can you help me and I said uh, well the first thing we're gonna do is is help you with the alcohol and the sugar Uh, for now just stay smoking and and we'll just work on these other two and she went dead silent on the phone and didn't say anything. It was a very long minute for me as a clinician <laughs> to have that silence. And her first words were, I'm so glad you said that. I would have hung up on you if I said to give up all three. Yeah, wow. And, and can, you, can you guess why I said, drop the sh- let's drop the sugar and alcohol. Let's try to get the sugar and alcohol under dealt with first and keep the smoking. Why? So the lead time to significant damage by smoking is decades. Yeah. Cancer doesn't show up for decades. It shows up. I'm not saying smoking is good for you, but alcohol and sugar can screw you up now. Yeah. Like right now, you know, metabolic syndrome, 
alcohol, like the dangers of alcohol affecting your brain and your driving, you know, being hangry and sugar up and down and all the rest of it. Mm -mm. The sugar and alcohol are way more destructive, in my opinion, uh, in the short term to long term than cigarettes are. It doesn't mean I'm not going to help her get off cigarettes. It's just you got to make the clinical call. Mm. Uh, and I made the clinical call, which happened to be the right one. Mm. So uh, I'm not against replacing a vice with something less damaging as long as it's done consciously to buy time to work on everything else. Right. The resilience phase is, is what we just discussed about brain chemistry. How do you deal with resilience? I use the 10 pillars of health. Yep. How do you increase the body's resilience is you look at their 10 pillars of health and build up their internal resources so that if they do have a stressful belief that comes through their head, they're not so vulnerable emotionally to it. Therefore, they're not likely to reach for the vice. Mm. Okay, so this is how people can live with stressful belief systems but not reach for an addictive vice because their resilience is high and they're not going to reach for it. Is there is there some kind of parallel to this um, beast model where it's it's represented within the brain chemically, or what's what's going on in your neuros, your recept, your brain receptors and all that kind of stuff? Okay, so if you're going to talk about resilience, you're going to talk about like dopamine receptors and and um, you know the. I don't know if you want to call it dopamine resistance, um, but basically, if you're so spiked, if your body gets flooded with dopamine too much, <clears throat> too extreme, too strong, whether it's from chemicals or gambling or video games or otherwise, your brain tries to, because if your nerves are overstimulated, mm. they basically explode, like they short circuit. That's right. called um, that's called. Um, uh, transneural degeneration and can create a divergent spread in the brain and create all sorts of havoc. So, so the nerves, when they fire, they have to fire. They, they, you can't stop them. So if they're overstimulated, it's like telling a marathoner to run 20 miles after having not eaten for two days. They're going to keel over. Right. So the nerves, in order to protect themselves, withdraw the dopamine receptors from the surface of the nerves so they can't be stimulated so easily. Oh. So it's like they plug their ears or put on sunglasses so they can't, uh, metaphorically, so they can't be so over, they can't, they're at less risk of being overstimulated to the point where they die. So is that, is that, the, is that your body's response in anesthetized stage? So when, after you, anest I would put that in the damage, in the consequences, because that's the consequence of using your using your vice as you gotcha. overstimulate the dopamine areas and then the dopamine receptors withdraw, which is why you have um, uh, the, uh, um, I can't believe I'm blanking on this word. It's, it's the word where you need more and more of the substance to get the same result. Oh, uh, yes, yeah. Uh, uh, um, not to, uh, oh, it's like on. you normalize, it's like you normalize or adjust to it. Hold on, I, I can't believe I'm blanking on this word. Embarrassing. <laughs> Hold on. That's all right, You're like a word uh, king. You've it'll got come about... to me at like 2 a.m. But it's it's that phenomenon where you need stronger and stronger stimuli in order to get the same yeah. hit. And, and neurologically, you can literally count the number of receptors and see like half of them go away. And that's why you need more stimuli to overwhelm the receptors you do got left gotcha. to get the same hit. Yeah. So... Um, that's that's a that's a structural neurological reason uh, for what's happening with with the addiction cycle, and then these loops get grooved 
in and then it becomes uh, and so when I'll give you a practical example in my life like because I really got started with sugar and video games um, what happened was that um, it became the go-to crutch whenever a, as I went through life like mm. whether I remembered an old stressor or was experiencing a new one or anticipated a future stressor I would just go to I would just reach for sugar and video games because that's what was the reliable thing to numb out. Yeah. Um, so, as you so when you go through all these stages, all these phases, you know, you reach out for help, you do reverse the damage, you restrict, remove, and replace the vice, you work on your resilience via the ten pillars of health. But ultimately, you want to resolve the underlying stressful belief system. So this yeah. is where, like, the work of Byron Katie comes in. Yeah. I strongly recommend the work of Byron Katie for multiple reasons. One, it's secular, so it can be inserted into whatever belief system you have religiously or not, whether you're an atheist or whatever. Mm. Uh, an atheist or your religious person doesn't matter. Mm. It's very simple, it's straightforward, and it's scalable. You can do it on a piece of paper, you can do it on a $5 app, you can you know, take a live seminar, there's a... Um, there's a uh, free helpline staffed by volu trained volunteers mm. to walk you through it. Um, I've made a complete online course to train people because uh, I didn't see, because I saw like free website, blog, podcast, YouTube channels are fantastic. Mm. Downloadable worksheets have been amazing. Mm. Uh, you know, $20, $30 books and audios. And then it jumped to like, private facilitation, live courses, and giant seminars, and there's no, like, in-between online learning mechanism to teach people. So that's what I made, because I believed in this so much, because it helped me so much. So it's, yeah. like, a complete system to learn the work, and I interviewed certified facilitators and just walk you through. It's like a weekend seminar structured online. Awesome. So, But that's not the only thing that can work for people. So... It's like there's emotional freedom technique, which is the tapping. If you want a psychologist involved, I recommend cognitive behavioral therapy or constellation therapy or EMDR. Like there's multiple techniques that are extremely useful. The key is they've got to really uncouple the thought from the body response. So, and, right. and, and let, me, let me get real technical here. Okay, yeah. what's the difference between a belief and a thought? A belief is something more underlying and um, like based on an impression you've received maybe or conditioning and a thought is the kind of next layer up uh, that can change and adapt maybe. Okay, so I'll, my definition of a, of a belief is a thought plus body sensation. Okay, a thought is just an image that flies through the head. Yeah. A belief is when the thought lands in the body and you experience. That's phase two. That's yeah, the that's emotional, physical stress response. Right. If you have a happy thought that you believe, you have positive experiences in your body. When you have a stressful belief, meaning a thought that you believe in is stressful, you have stressful experiences in your body. Right. So, so, yeah, so oh, yeah, so that's, a, that's actually a better way to put it because I've heard someone put it like that as well. It, and they call it a, a belief is just an idea held rigidly or a, it's, it's a thought that people aren't letting go of. <laughs> kind well, of that actually becomes quite technical. It's the body is not letting go of. Gotcha. It, it's, it's a body response. The way you know you have a thought versus a belief is if you have a body sensation or not. Otherwise, it's just an image through the head. Mm. And, and you have people, you know, people say, oh, I believe this because I feel it. 
Mm. Well, of course you believe it because you just defined what a fe- what a belief is. Of course you believe it. <laughs> it's in the body. Yeah, that, you're that is it. that is a definition of a belief. You know, <laughs> and, and that's good news because there's a lot of people who are just chasing their feelings, and that's just them getting stuck in the second phase. You've got to go back to the beliefs that that mm. trigger the feelings. Fuck, you could you could sorry you could actually apply this to dogma or you know cultural addiction like i mean you're you're smiling because you know but, but yeah this yeah. rabbit hole goes very deep my friend yeah no very shit, very man. very deep wow um, so so here's the kicker if you identify and question your core stressful beliefs this cycle never begins mm. that's how you deal with addiction at the root level and that requires tremendous vulnerability. Um, yeah, it's called the work of Byron Katie, not yeah. the easy, not the convenient, and not the comfortable. Yeah. It's called the work. Mm-mm. Okay, and I, I believe there's about 50, only really 50 to 100 core beliefs that people really truly carry that just spiderweb with each other. Fascinating. And have you, you listed them? Uh, I've just listed a bunch. Yeah. Well, if you could categorize them into like five categories, or can you? Um, Not. I haven't. I haven't actually categorized them. Katie came up with sixty-four universal stressful belief systems, beliefs, and um, I actually use that that list as a trainer for the turnarounds for her system. So Katie has you take a belief, you ask four questions, and turn the thought around. Sometimes the mechanics of taking the thought and flipping it to its opposite can be difficult. So I literally just made a worksheet of the 64 universal stressful beliefs and then made a worksheet of the, the belief and then three blanks to try to do the turnarounds mm. and then an answer key. So it's like, he hurt me. You know, I'm referring to someone who hit me in school. Mm. A turnaround is, I hurt me. And I find examples of how that's true. And I'm skipping ahead. I should probably start from the beginning. So like... Like someone's someone's beating me up in school, being hit in the face. Yeah. Um, I'll actually I'll actually simplify about a thousand hours of Buddhism into two minutes here. Okay. <laughs> so so the difference between I'm about to describe the difference between pain and suffering. Okay. Yeah. So pain is me being punched in the right cheek behind the lockers in high school. Pain is also me attempting to play tennis and a full force tennis ball hits me in the right cheek because I miscalculated. Okay. Yeah. Both events are painful. Um, now, when I'm hit in the face by the bully, um, I have I now have anch- these beliefs that are anchored. I'm unsafe. Larger athletic males are dangerous. The school doesn't care. The principal doesn't care. My family doesn't care. My friends don't care. I'm unsafe. The world's unsafe. I can't trust anybody. Into suffering. Okay? So pain is the event. Suffering is the beliefs that are tethered to the event. That's suffering. So what the work does is we identify an event, a stressful event, and then we take one thought at a time. I just named about a half dozen or so thoughts. So like, Mm. he hurt me. Mm. And then take that one thought and holding the event in mind as I question the thought. We don't question the periphery of the thought. We, 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 We question it in the moment when, as we recall, when the thought was literally beaten into me okay mm, mm. Um, so I asked the question is it true he hurt me 
Okay, and this may be a very challenging line of questioning for people who are new to this because some people think, well, yeah, I've been hurt, I've been, I've been assaulted, I've, I've, I've had, you know, physical injury, I've lost a limb, I, I've been damaged, I've been infected, I mean, whatever it is. And, and again, this is not to condone the behavior of what the perpetrator did, it's to free the mind of suffering. That's all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's it's just to find. I, I still remember the event. I don't condone the behavior, but when I think about it, I'm not personally emotionally triggered anymore. That's freedom, mm -hmm. and I can now all that all that bitterness, resentment, and anger and fear and rage uh, is now free from me, and all that creative energy is now unlocked. And it doesn't mm -hmm. mean I become passive and allow people to hit me again. Quite the opposite. I'm now operating from a clear head and able to deal with the situation better. Mm. because I've questioned the situation. Mm. So, first question is, is it true? He hurt yeah. me. And it's a yes or no, and I can find a yes or, I can, like, yes, he hurt me. It's like, can I absolutely know, second question, can I absolutely know that he hurt me? And then when I recall, when, when I really look back on it, for me anyway, and people can say yes, it's absolutely true, mm. but when, for me, I can say no, because I don't actually remember the pain, I remember the fear. I don't have any broken bones or, or bruises and or permanent damage that I'm aware of. So I can say no, I, I can't absolutely know that it's true that he hurt me. And again, for other people in their situation, it can be absolutely yes. Mm. Third question is how do I react what happens when I believe the thought, he hurt me? Oh, then I go into this big, rich scenario, these delicious revenge fantasies, or, <laughs> or uh, any large athletic male, I, I have a stress response when I see them, or I become closed in and depressed that no one's out there to help me or protect me. I reach for sugar. Mm -hmm. I reach for video games. Hmm. I reach for the addiction is the third question. How do I react? What happens when you believe that thought? Hmm. I reach for something to numb out. Okay, mm. so you can you can go through this. How do I treat the bully in my head? Like in my head, how do I treat him? I, all these revenge fantasies. How do I treat myself? I beat myself up. I get stressed out. I can feel my blood pressure mm. rising. Uh, how do I treat the school? How do I? I'll, I'll go through all these little sub questions. Question mm. four is who would I be without the thought in the same situation? Mm. You know, he hurt me. So in that situation, if I didn't have the thought, he hurt me. Honestly, I feel like I could have defended myself better and, and like gotten yelled for help because I had the fear that, he, oh, he hurt me, he's going to hurt me more if I yell out. Gotcha. Okay, so there's this, this, this like fear of speaking out against the perpetrator that, was, that kept me silent because I believed he hurt me, which, which I, mean, I mean, people can follow that logic, like he'll hurt me more if... Um, and then there's the turnarounds, which is how we got to this discussion. So the turnarounds are you take the thought after we've questioned it and, and turn it around to its opposites and genuinely find examples of how the opposites are as true or truer. Not to condone the person who hit me, but to put the chink in the armor or chip away at this obelisk of this thought, he hurt me, which I can live with for decades. Mm. I, mean, mm. I mean, when I, when I look at it, What's been more painful for me, the two minutes of being hit or the two decades of replaying the scenario of being hit in my head? Fucking brilliant question. Yeah. It's a brilliant observation because I think people get so stuck in the, in the karmic repetitive trauma. Mm-hmm.
And that's that's an that that question's not from me. That's from Byron Katie. She asks mm -hmm. that how long? I mean, when it gets to physical assault or abuse or rape or, or or incest or whatever it was, and I've I've taken like 30 days of training with Katie and lots of other trainings with her other teachers, and like I've seen her question, you know, uh, war prisoners, uh, victims or survivors rather of of rape of incest. Uh, just uh, people seeing people murdered in front of their eyes, like mm. it's it, like this is not this is not casual stuff that this work can be applied to. Mm. So so when you ask like how she asked this question is like how often did it happen? How long did it take? Let's add it all up and then double it. So if I add up all the time that I've been assaulted and that just from arm leaving shoulder hitting face ricocheting off face or other body part probably two hours total if you were to add it all up mm. let's double it and say four the reason why you double it is because the mind can be like well maybe it was two hours and 30 minutes or whatever just mm. just mm. double it mm. so then you then you ask how long have so how many hours a day have you been have you thought about this over how many years it's thousands of hours yeah what's what is more harmful what is more hurtful the actual hit or your own mind punish replaying it over and over and over again and my answer is, is absolutely the mind it, it just it screams like there's no coming of age there's no healthy process for how to deal with conditioned behavior you know? and I don't, you know it's just like this that guy also received suffering he's passing on that energetic field of suffering to you and like th this shit just goes transfers from one anatomy to the next and if only our culture was set up in with fucking wise elders giving us <laughs> methodology to process this shit so like what the fuck man <laughs> like, okay so i think i think the answer is actually a little less cosmic yeah. <laughs> uh, honest, I think it's just a little less, a little less cosmic. Like, like we've got all the resources now. We just need to implement them. Like, what, what are elders? Elders are people who have legitimate elders. They've worked through their belief systems and have come to a place of peace of their own personal wounds and the wounds that they've inflicted upon others and have made amends and have now on a path of compassion and healing of others. Yeah. We can do that now. We have the systems to do it. I mean, the work of Byron Katie is, I don't, it's it's like cultural, you know, you know, rites of passage and coming of ages are all incredibly valuable things, massively valuable. I mean, for, for you know, right now, like martial arts black belt grading is probably the most reliable coming of age thing someone can just jump in, it may take a couple years to get there, mm. but it's, it's probably the most culturally accepted you know hopefully not life-threatening process yeah. to go through a grading um, but you know we can do stuff now with with just questioning our stressful thoughts um, and and with the, the turnarounds like you can take the turnaround from he hurt me to I hurt me Yes. How did I hurt me? I hurt me by replaying this thing for 20 years. Yeah. You hurt yourself more than he hurt you. Yeah. Uh, that has just taken responsibility for, like, as soon as, it, like, it to be cosmic again, as soon as that energy enters your anatomy and you hold it in your space, mm -hmm. it's your responsibility now. Yeah. You know, you, uh, the, the pro I think the problem lies is that we, we, don't, we don't have the power. We, we often don't just take fucking responsibility for what's in our field.
And, and that's where mentorship and a support system is for. That's why support mm. groups are so valuable, whether whether it's like a men's group or a women's group or mm. a 12-step group or uh, an online support group or, or even just a coach, a mentor, a clinician. Mm. It's because that and an elder, frankly. I mean, that's one of the roles of the elders is to be present for you and hold you accountable and make sure that you keep moving forward instead of getting lost in your own mental morass. Yes. So the the turnarounds, uh, there's like from he hurt me to I hurt me. And then there's another term which can be really challenging for people, I hurt him. So how did <laughs> I hurt him? Now, I don't have an adamantium cheek. I didn't break his knuckle on my zygomatic process. I know <laughs> that, okay? But the way that, and we're looking for, even if he did 99%, 99.9, where's my 1%? So my 1%, which I found in this situation, was psychologically stabbing him with venom, like, like, like looking at him and shooting him the look, bad-mouthing mm -hmm. him behind his back. Um, anyone who reminded me of him, I shut out of my life or didn't give them like, like I, mm. people who looked like him remotely or acted like him remotely, I immediately wrote off as a human being, not, mm. not as not a human being at all. Mm. So that's how I hurt him, my image of him and everyone else I projected him onto. Mm. So it's, it's, again, people, it's, I mean, this can be very intense for people to listen to is like, how can I hurt the person who genuinely, physically, demonstrably hurt me? Well. If you want freedom, find the subtle, even if it's just in your mind, of these delicious revenge fantasies of him going through some ironic punishment, physical, whatever. That's me hurting him, even if it's just in my mind. Yes. Brilliant, dude. That's fucking powerful. Because that's, it is, there's, no, there's no stone unturned. Yeah. And then the third turnaround is, he didn't hurt me. Hmm. Okay, so for me, it's... Well, I don't have long-lasting damage in my particular case. Mm. The other is that my consciousness is still preserved despite whatever physical thing that was done. Mm. Then the other turnaround is he helped me. <laughs> Not that he hurt me, but he helped me. And, and this, is, this is where it gets real. How did he help me? Okay, very clearly, I do not tolerate violence in any relationship. Mm. Not everyone has made that line in the sand. Mm. Okay? Anyone hits me for any reason, they're, f they're out. They're gone. Mm. I, do not, I do not tolerate any physical violence on my person whatsoever. That is, that is a red line that shall never be crossed. But also, you've got greater psychological capability now as well, which is a I huge, do. huge he upgrade. Helped, so he helped me. You, that was the next one. He helped me is that this event has been tremendous psychological fodder for me to find freedom. Yeah. Okay, and I'm not going out there and running into dark alleys hoping people will hit me so I get more psychological fodder. Okay, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, I can use the events of my life for my personal freedom. That's how he helped me. Wow. And that's huge, man. Like, that's, it's kind of like if you would scale out and look at evolution, it needs a destruction operator to come in and um, or a destructive force to create chaos and expansion. Like, mm. there's no doubt that you expanded 
after this event and because of this event. Um, so you can kind of like see it as all good in that sense, really. Well, you- there's, there's, you, there, you can get to a point spiritually where you can see it as all good, but that really comes after you've questioned all. That was only one thought of about a half dozen or so. Yeah. So it's like you got to systematically question all of them, and when you see it as all good, is when there's no negative body response, and you have found personal freedom from the trauma of that event. Yes. Additionally, like just another way that this gentleman, gentleman, helped me, <laughs> was that. Um, I guess that's a that's a good marker of my consciousness. <laughs> uh, I'll take that as a self compliment. Um, anyway, the the way that the is that I now when I connect to patients and a lot of my patients have bon- gone through a lot of physical extremes uh, mm. uh, that were not consented to, mm. and I now can relate on a certain level to physical violence and violation. Mm. because of that and other similar experiences. And so that when I communicate with the patient and they talk about a violation, I can look at them and discuss with them and they can feel that I am totally on that wavelength with them. Mm. And I'm unafraid to be present with them for that. Mm. and to hold them in that space with high regard and trust and know that they can come out of that trauma because I've come out of my own trauma that was physical based dude that's incredible and that's the that speaks to the thing of pushing into the pain to resolve that stressful belief thing you pushed into it pushed into it and that's what Byron Katie's work does one question I had about your um I, I really want to go a little bit deeper on this thing of you saying that addiction is not necessarily an illness, and some because I, I wonder if that disempowers people that that phrase it like that, you know. Like okay, which we're disempowering in what way? Because they they're not they're not giving themselves the opportunity to rid it from them. I, look, I, I'm nowhere near experienced enough in this, but like I know I speak from personal experience. I was mentally ill, depressed. Um, I wasn't addicted to anything, but I was addicted to the thought patterns. So yeah, I was addicted um, to the negative thought patterns. That was very destructive. Mm-hmm. I, I've had somewhat of relapses, minus relapses, but I don't let myself go as deep as I did because I, know, I now know I've got the tools. But I wouldn't say I'm mentally ill right now. You know, like I haven't got an illness that's in me for mm-hmm. life. I might have more neural pathway reach into darkness because I've gone down the path now so I could go I know how to get down there again neurologically my brain paths are probably thicker but I don't feel like I don't feel like you know it's a it's an illness I carry through my life so re-ask me the with that context ask me the question again do you feel that people that are addicted to something saying that that it's a disease disempowers them from releasing themselves from the okay it okay so so this this is where um okay how to put this diplomatically okay so like like i mentioned before uh, earlier i think it is a useful trope to call it an illness in the beginning to get people to snap out of their denial of that there's something wrong with what they're doing. 
Okay, and that when it's an illness, it can be, you can take it like, oh, an illness can be treated. And then there's the other line of an illness is permanent. And it's the, this is permanent issue that I have issue with. Yeah. Okay, that's the problem I have with it. Yeah. If it's, okay, I have a problem with addiction, I'm going to get this treated, and I get it treated and be done with it, that's what I support. The, the sense of permanency, that I have a problem with. Gotcha. Okay, so um, it's, it's a useful trope for many people to get onto the path of recovery. It, there comes a point where it holds people back. And this is not coming from me, this is coming, well, it's coming from me, but it's coming from a lot of former um, anonymous people who feel that for them anyway, they felt like it got to a point where the meetings just became some sort of drinking by proxy, where you just kept repeating this, like, it was like you were drinking through, through constantly talking about not drinking. And it's like, it became this, it became this thing that you were told you were never ever going to beat and you were always beholden to it and you were always being an addict and you always had to, you know, engage with this top heavy theism and like it and for those people who to talk to me about this it was like you know it just it became a plateau right and i wanted to move beyond even the identity of being an addict and the yes. anonymous program was not letting me do that yes it's not built it's not built to do that so and and for them they 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 left the anonymous movement because they wanted to move beyond it and that's not taking away from the benefits they got from the anonymous movement. Not at yeah. all. Yes. You know, so that's what I'm talking about. It's, it's, it's a stage issue. And some people want to stay in the illness model because it feels like it stabilizes them. Yeah. You know, and, and if, if they feel like the identity of it as an illness and they've got their, their group that they meet, whatever frequency, once a day, once a week, once a fortnight, once a month, whatever, and that keeps them anchored to reality and they don't spin out into the addictive cycle again and that's the level uh, that that's the level at which they're comfortable staying at with the phase of their recovery then that's what it is um, and and that's you know that's where it comes down to you know how far deep do you want to how far deep do you want to actually recover and recovery is where there's a, there's a phrase in Taoism which took me a couple of years to, to kind of tease apart when you have forgotten that you have forgotten <laughs> then you are free yeah it's deep <laughs> so we don't have to tease that apart now but we can just leave that as a little cone to yeah. for people to that's beautiful to think when you've forgotten then you that you have forgotten then you are free <laughs> that's, that's really that's fucking that's a bit of a mind bender isn't it yeah yeah but, but, but when you let when you just sit on it you've forgotten that you've forgotten then you're free because you're liberated from the forgetfulness it's not the forgetfulness because if oh I forgot I did this like when you forgot you're like oh I just remembered that I was this addict of blah 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 when you have forgotten that you have forgotten, it's like your whole identity of being an addict is not even in your consciousness to even remember. 
Gotcha. And by saying by saying not remembers, I'm you're gonna blank out of all your memories of when you used, but they're just become images in the head that are not have no body response. That's like it's just like mm. a, someone else's movie. Mm-hmm. You know, that you've forgotten that you have forgotten. It's like you're not. It's not even a part of your identity that you even can conceivably identify with anymore. Mm. Mm. Gotcha. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> Man, well, Dr. Sam Shea, thank you so much for just dropping so much knowledge there. And from addiction to the biohacking, I feel like we could go super deep on any of one of those channels. But yeah. as a, <laughs> And as you are capable of doing with all those amazing words that pour out of your mouth, <laughs> your, your, your capability, your vocabulary is fucking dictionary-esque. But Thanks. I've been, I just, called, I've, been called, uh, I've been called Samopedia before. <laughs> it's true but I just thank you thank you so much for your time and sharing this knowledge and just people google Dr. Sam Shea if you want more if you want a session of you sure and I've with- got if people want to go deeper like I've got online programs that cover these things in way more depth like yep. if people want the 10 pillars of health model like I've got uh, if, if people want to work with me there's different ways they can do it Yep. Like I've got people want to have a a fifteen minute chat with me. They can schedule it, you know, on you know bit.ly forward slash fifteen minute chat with Dr. Sam. You can go to my website drsamshay.com and click the link there. Awesome. I also have three online programs. If you want way more depth, like for example, the the ten pillars of health, the biohacking. Yeah. That's actually my reclaim your energy and mystery fatigue course. Great. And it's framed around adrenal fatigue because, I mean, that's the majority of the patients that I treat, and that's what I went through. But I cover the ten pillars in depth. That's like ten hours of me lecturing, broken up into all the different pillars. So you get way more depth and way more detail and practical. Like we talked a bit about the bowel. Like mm-hmm. there were seven things that you could do right away. Like I cover that and more, and then I go through like all the pillars and give very practical things to do like the exercise like I talk about how to do safe high intensity interval training and and so on and so forth so the biohackers should get the reclaim your energy course and if people want the addiction people want the addiction course it's flourish out of addiction and it's it's on my website or flourishoutofaddiction.com and I go through this entire model tracking sugar and video games as the examples but as you can tell like the the model applies to whatever you're going through mm. and i also throw in if people get the addiction course i throw in my byron katie course with awesome. it so that's what the work online course the stress transform stress into freedom courses that's my byron katie course people can get that as a standalone but if they want the addiction course i throw the byron katie course in uh for free because I do not believe people can get over addictions unless they have a very solid tool to resolve the root belief systems. Mm. And Byron Katie to me is one of the best. And as I said before, there are others for sure. But I think mm. Katie's is just marvelous. So I just, I put that in. I so believe in it that I, I give it with my addiction course. That's fantastic. What a fucking offering, man. Healing the world. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, is there anywhere else that people can check you out on social media or? Uh, they. Uh, they can they can put my name into YouTube and I've got loads of videos on sugar addiction fatigue the work other stuff they can just put uh, they can put my name into Facebook and I've got a couple talks 
on my Facebook feed. Mm. Um, I don't. My, I am so silent on the Twitter universe. Uh, it's just not even worth going there. Uh, <laughs> but that's that's and podcasts. Like you can put my name, uh, just Dr. Sam Shea, into iTunes, and you'll find other podcasts I've been on. And I've been on several summits that are kicking around the summit universe. But really, the, the place to go first is just my website, uh, drsamshay.com, D-R-S-A-M-S-H-A-Y.com. And there you can find my uh, video uh, ending gaming, Unplugged from Gaming Disorder book. You can find all three of my programs. You can find out more about the genetics. You can watch the interview I did with Dr. Paul Beaver. Um, you can... Uh, learn a whole bunch of stuff on there and uh, then second I would check and you can get on my mailing list um, right. there you can also get uh, go on to YouTube that would be the other place to go amazing man well I'm going to continue following your work because it's right down the alley of what I care about so thank you again for dropping all that information and your time oh you're very welcome it was, it was a lot of fun thank you <laughs> take care man see you dude fucking awesome so that's going to help people tremendously it's just so practical. That's what I think I love about it is that you've got this, this very scientific, pragmatic approach to this shit that can be really foggy for a lot of people, particularly when you're in it, when you're in the depths of addiction mm -hmm. and, and, and these things. So, Yeah, that's why I put so much work into the mnemonics and the ease of the words, like the yeah. beast. Yes. You know, because that's what the addiction feels like. It's a beast on your back, you know. Mm, mm. Uh, and the 10 pillars of health, that's why it's color-coded. It's alliterative. And the smolder is another um, acronym to capture the emotionality and help people remember. And, and the R's for resolve, resilience, restrict, you know, reverse damage, reach out for – like this, mm. this is the uh, – it's and when you're in the throes of addiction, it's pretty hard to – remember what to do um so so yeah. true and I, I also think it's just so relevant like reminding people that addiction isn't just gross addiction like uh, you know like obvious addiction to, to alcohol and such it's this, we, we we are so fucking addicted and that's the other area that i was curious about is like why we what is it about the human brain that creates addiction you know, is it, is well, it, it's, you're not addiction. You're not addicted to drinking. You're addicted to thinking. You already said it. Yes. Yes. So there's um, one thing I forgot to mention on the podcast is Katie has a three CD set called The Truth Behind Addiction. Yeah. Which I think you should put on your email list or just just put that in. Link it to iTunes or whatever. I don't know or wherever Amazon. Yeah. But she's this three CD set where she goes through addiction from her vantage point, and it's yeah. you're addicted to thinking, not your drinking. Yeah. And when people, you know, and the, the vices can wear down people's resilience, which makes them more vulnerable to drinking. Yes. But the addiction is not the drinking. It's the thinking. And, well, and neurologically, and, why, why do we want to go to thought? Is it to numb pain or like what, what's going on in our brain where we're so fucking addicted to thinking and not expanding our thinking? Okay. Well, that, that has to do with the Rat Park experiment uh, and, and, Boredom. I'm sure you've heard of the Rat Park experiment. I haven't. No. Really? No. <laughs> okay. So one where you where you feed where you feed the you put a rat in a cage. You give it cocaine or food. Oh yes, yes, I have. Okay. I have heard of that. Okay. But then the other half of the experiment was where they then attached that same cage to a whole rat city with other rats and, and parks and things to make the pat 
for the rats to do. And the rat never once touched the cocaine. Mm. It did, I know it did it once and then, and then it went out and played with all the other rats and never used it again. Mm. So, so there's a cultural community aspect that the addiction is on the rise, I think, partly because we're so separated. Yeah. But again, even that sense of separation ultimately is just another stressful thought. Yeah. So, so it does boil back to thoughts. And um, why the brain is so prone to addiction, uh, it, it, look, there, there's a long evolution psychology of uh, evolutionary psychology tract that explains the evolutionary benefit of having these addictive kind of tendencies because it, it in some ways was one evolutionary strategy, uh, you know, sex addiction certainly. Uh, were, uh, the the addiction to achievement and workaholism would give you rise in your tribe's prominence. Yeah. Um, survival. The, if you survi- yeah. I mean, you just you're, if you're if you're a workaholic, you're going to do more than your share for the tribe, and they're going to reward you. You know. Uh, and it's there. There's, you know, and also addicts can be incredibly creative people. I mean, just look. I mean, look at you know, people who are ex addicts who are just like yards of energy to do stuff. So mm-hmm. maybe the addiction wasn't there in ancient tribal cultures, but the mass creativity was, and they just found a way to focus it on something else that wasn't addicted. Now, granted, they could have been addicted to sex, they could have been addicted to work, they could have been addicted to hunting, they could have been addicted to whatever, you know, mushroom caps happen to be growing or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like addiction was only, you know, a first world problem in the 21st century. Hmm. Uh, you know, it's, I, I think addiction, the, the tendency is there. Hmm. And part of evolution is to create a variety of behaviors to see which ones sort out over time. Right. And you always keep a little bit of the behaviors that didn't work in reserve just in case it comes a point where it does become viable. Right. Right. So, but, um, but there's not a case-specific hormone release for addiction in itself. It's very. It, it's very. Look, I, I. I think it's low cortisol. Right. Uh, because the people who have low cortisol, they have low resilience, and they can't cope. So right. I, I didn't. Um, uh, that's where I would go with the hormone side of it. And then from a neurotransmitter side of it, you can blame dopamine and the dopamine receptors. And, but I mean, these are very simplistic. I mean, the person to really talk to on the details of that would be someone like Dr. Hyla Cass. Mm. And she, she wrote a whole, she's a psychiatrist who's been in functional medicine for 30 years. So she's the one who wrote the book on the functional neurochemistry of addiction. Right. Uh, so, so wow. she's way more upskilled on that side of it. Uh, yeah. Great. I can talk about if that helps. Great. That's helpful. I just wanted to point out. Wonderful. Okay. Thanks, doctor. <laughs> All right. You're welcome. All right. See you Have later. See ya. Bye.